Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And you know how you'll hear a story on the radio, a story about a particular person, say, and it just sticks with you? You've never met the person in question, but something about his or her tale, his or her struggles or triumphs, just really strikes a chord. Well, that kind of thing happens to us all the time. So we've decided to go back to all the stories we've aired over the past year or so and pluck out those pieces about people we simply cannot forget. That's why we're calling today's show Profiles. We'll hit the water with a guy who has spent his entire working life there. It's tough. It's it's a hard way. We'll shadow a rookie cop on the overnight shift. There are times when you get on, on scene of a call and you're like, I feel like a rookie. I don't know what to do with this. And we'll hear how one man's drug addiction inspired him to teach others to just say no. I can't say I'll never get high again, but what I can sit here and say, I, I don't ever want to get high again. But first, back in April, as the April 15th tax filing deadline loomed large, we did a show about debt. We mainly talked about it in the financial sense. But the thing is, some of the debts we carry aren't about money at all. And a longtime Washingtonian who knows that fact all too well. All right, so can you start off by showing me what we have here? Well, I mean, I have tons of pictures. Is Cliff Brody. These are amongst the thousands of pictures here. But you see a uh, young Lieutenant Brody. Is that you? That's me. Oh, my gosh. And people said, and I didn't realize it then, that I looked very much like Bobby Kennedy. I was going to say, it's an amazing resemblance. Yes. From 1967 to 1968, the young Lieutenant Brody was serving with the 89th Military Police Unit in the U.S. Army in Vietnam. This picture, I'm carrying a a sack of food supplements uh, with a young man named Joe Blakely. Joe was my sergeant skinny old Joe or skinny young Joe, a very, very, very slight guy. If he turned sideways, you know, he would disappear. Both Cliff and skinny old Joe were in their 20s. Cliff hailed from New York and Joe from Philadelphia. Uh, Joe was the nephew of the mayor of Philadelphia, Frank Rizzo, and he was very proud of Uncle Frank. Uncle Frank was a little corrupt, but what can you say? When Cliff and Joe met in Vietnam, they became fast friends. We drove around together to villages in what must have been the world's first army jeep. It was so old and broken down. The guys were driving around in that same jeep one day in 1968 when Joe did something, Cliff says. That saved my sense of being, for which uh, I'm incredibly indebted to him. The May Offensive, Phase 2 of the Tet Offensive, had begun. And Cliff and Joe were running a convoy of about two dozen U.S. Army trucks to Saigon. Their jeep was in front, a military police vehicle was in back. And Cliff remembers it was an absolutely sweltering day. You know, it's like 500 degrees outside. We're bedecked with all of this military gear, the steel helmet and everything. So they were driving, and Cliff and Joe stopped at this one traffic light in the dusty, crowded city. And at that point, Cliff looked in his rearview mirror at the truck behind him, and he saw something kind of unexpected. This person reaching up under the two-and-a-half-ton truck, and he's grabbing something. So I grab my rifle, my carbine, and Joe's looking at me, and I said, Joe, someone's taking something from that truck. 
That something, Cliff quickly realized, was a U.S. Army toolkit. So without even thinking, he leapt out of the Jeep and raced off to catch the presumed thief who had dashed across the road. And then into a rice paddy, he's got the tools from the armor truck. Now, our young Lieutenant Brody at this point was angry. It had been more than half a year since he'd been serving in the war. A war, to be frank, uh, he didn't really approve of or even understand. And my temper wasn't building up. My frustration was. So that's when Cliff did something he'll never forget. He raised his rifle. And I put a bullet in the chamber. And just as he was about to pull the trigger... Choke him flying over. Grabs the gun. Pulls it down by the barrel. And says to Lieutenant Brody... Sir, sir, he says. It's just tools. He's just a kid. I remember the voice. It's just a kid. And that, Cliff says, is when reality set in. If I had shot the boy. I would have never been happy with myself. Never. I would have run from the memory like I've run from a lot of other memories, but it would find its way to the surface. Hence his eternal indebtedness to one Sergeant Joe Blakely. Joe was my conscience, obviously, at that moment. Uh, People do things so we're all told in the heat of war, and I certainly saw the evidence of that while I was in Vietnam. We all do things we regret. That would have been a big one. After the war, Cliff Brody served in the Foreign Service and lost touch with Joe Blakely. Cliff's done a little research, though, and it seems skinny old Joe died in 1988. What would you say to Joe right now if he were able to listen? Joe, I don't think you have any idea of how much your being there at that time made me much more able to live with who I am. Thank you. Cliff has been pretty big on thank yous ever since that fateful day in May 68, and he believes we all should be. I think it's useful from time to time to look back on events in your life and answer the question, who has helped me become a better person? And then we should say, well, how do we pay those people back? In my opinion, you don't. There's no way to pay those people back. Some of them have moved on. Some of them have died. So the payback is by doing the same thing for someone else. Move now from Vietnam in the 60s to D.C. in the early 90s. In those days, a powerful and popular man named John A. Wilson headed up the D.C. Council. Wilson was considering a bid for mayor, and many thought he'd win. But as Jacob Fenston tells us, John Wilson had a darker side, which led to an event that shook the district 20 years ago. On May 18th, 1993, John Wilson went to work as usual. Clerk, you want to determine the quorum? As council chairman, Wilson was presiding over a grueling, day-long public hearing. I would like to inform the council that the chairman has over 40 witnesses today. And if you do not have to pontificate, I would appreciate it. Wilson sounds sleepy and distant during the hearing. But between sessions, he made time to catch up with his old friend and colleague, Marion Barry. And we spent about an hour and a half just 
talking about all kinds of things, you know, some light, some heavy. And Barry says Wilson was different. He seemed happier than he'd been in a long time. I'm almost convinced that John had made his mind up. He was going to do this. He felt free. Hearing stand adjourned until Friday at uh, 10 p.m. 10 a.m. The next day, May 19th, John Wilson did not show up to work. It's a morning his colleagues still remember. Council member Jack Evans. There was some reason we were all getting together. So most of the council members were there. Uh, we were at breakfast at, uh, that John, he was chairman of the council, that he and staff had arranged. Former council member Frank Smith. It was a breakfast that we were all uh, waiting for him and for the mayor to come, Mayor Kelly. And uh, he didn't show up, which was unusual for him. Uh, to be late. And so we sat there for a while thinking that he was going to show in a minute. We started calling, no answer. Bridget Quinn was Wilson's chief of staff. I sent a staff person over to his house. He got in and unfortunately found John. She told the mayor, Sharon Pratt Kelly, and Kelly went to the council members who were still waiting. Sharon said, I got some bad news for you. They just found John Wilson hung in his basement in a cold Chill went all up and down my back. He was on a stretcher. By the time we got there, it was makes my voice shake even now today. You know, it was a very sad day for everyone and uh, kind of threw us all for a loop. Nobody really saw this coming. It was shocking even for Bridget Quinn, who'd worked with Wilson every day for two decades. Total surprise. Total, total surprise. I would never th- have thought it would have come to that. Never, ever, ever in a million years, no. When John Wilson died, it was, uh, it was a huge story in D.C. Peter Pearl was a reporter at the Washington Post. He spent the months after Wilson's death digging into the story for a long magazine piece. Wilson, he says, was totally unique among lawmakers. He was clearly the most colorful, the most charismatic, and probably the most effective member of the D.C. government. Wilson was a D.C. institution. He came out of the civil rights movement along with other black leaders, including Mary and Barry. Wilson and Barry were elected to the first D.C. council in 1974. But along with being the city's most effective lawmaker, Pearl says Wilson was also its most erratic, a trait that could be disarming and attractive, but also just very strange. But people liked him a lot. Wilson was elected by huge margins in what was then the city's most diverse ward, Ward 2. In a frequently divided city, he brought people together. It wasn't just racial. It was rich and poor. It was young and old. It was people who never been in the same room together. Political activist Marie Drissel lives in a posh section of Adams Morgan. She supported Wilson and became a close friend starting back in the 70s. Part of Wilson's appeal was his blunt honesty. He would tell you what he thought no matter who you were and somehow make you love him for it. John had the ability to <laughs> criticize you right in your face. <laughs> he could just tell you off. While Wilson could connect with wealthy white Washingtonians, he was also at home in the poorest housing projects. And he didn't shy from giving fellow African Americans a hard time, too. I mean, I don't, I don't understand black people anyway wake up talking about I don't know who I am. I have low self-esteem. Here, he's talking to a class at Howard University, sitting on the teacher's desk, holding forth and enjoying it. It's like my father used to tell me, come on over, you got a low self-esteem, I'll kick something in your ass, you know, in the process. <laughs> you know, so, so that you have something, you see. You see? You know, I don't know who I am. I'm, I'm in search of myself. You know what I mean? You're in search, all right? All you got to do is go look at any mirror, in, in any mirror. You are black. 
You're going to be black until the day you die, and there's always going to be somebody who comes and wants to rain on your parade because you are. Now, what you have to decide is whether or not you're going to let people rain on your parade. There's a constitution that says that you do not have a right to rain on my goddamn parade on any given day. So what happened to rain on John Wilson's parade? The time period was difficult in the city uh, in 1993. Councilmember Jack Evans again. Evans says the budget pressures in the city probably had something to do with Wilson's suicide. The economy nationwide was in, in a freefall, and the city was in a freefall. And John was head of the council and had been the finance chair. And so I think there were a lot of pressures on him to try and figure out how to run the finances of the city in the face of a uh, disastrous economy. Total deficit projected for 93, $110.9 million. That's Wilson at a press conference in 1992. He's wielding a pointer and has a series of giant charts. The mayor says we don't need furlough. She says she wants to raise salaries in 1993. Where is the money? Look at the charts. There is no money for 93. Well, you know, John used to call himself a social liberal and a fiscal conservative. Former council member Frank Smith again. Smith says part of Wilson's undoing was the tension between these two desires. He wanted the government to live up to its social contract, providing good jobs and helping the poor, but at the same time to get the city's budget under control. Smith says Wilson also felt too keenly the troubles of others. You know, some people go down to the altar with one bag of trouble and they come back with two bags. They got their bag and somebody else's bag when they come back. And so they never can sort of lay that burden down. And I think that was John's problem. There was also a medical name for Wilson's problem, depression. He'd been fighting it his whole adult life, but he didn't talk about it, even with his close friend, Marion Barry. John kept it from us. In fact, I learned that he had tried to commit suicide two times earlier. I didn't know that. Reporter Peter Pearl says Wilson couldn't open up about his depression for fear it would ruin his career. And this came to a head as he contemplated running for mayor. Here he was, fulfilling his own dream and the expectations of a whole lot of people, and on the verge of this. And I just think that the pressure of him knowing how flawed he was, and hardly anyone else knowing, probably just at some point became so painful that he had no other way to get out of it. Five months after his death, the council voted to rename the district building after Wilson. So many pictures on the wall, you know? Councilmember Jack Evans has Wilson's old office on the main floor of what's now the John A. Wilson Building. And now, when visitors enter the marble halls from Pennsylvania Avenue, a life-size, smiling portrait of John Wilson greets them. There he is. I'm Jacob Fenston. You can see photos of John Wilson on our website, metroconnection.org. And a big thanks to the Special Collections Research Center at George Washington University for use of those photos and for the archival audio in this story. Special thanks as well to the D.C. Council. After the break, the challenges of making a living as a waterman. You have uh, no benefits. You know, you don't have no health insurance. You don't have no 401ks or nothing like you do on a regular job. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. 
I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, we're reaching into the Metro Connection archives and bringing you some of our favorite profiles from the past year. In just a bit, we'll burn the midnight oil with a rookie cop and meet a Maryland man who kicked his drug habit and is now teaching others to do the same. First, though, let's head out on the water to the domain of people long known as watermen. Watermen's lives seem to be getting more challenging each year, what with increasing pollution, dwindling supplies of fish and crabs, and more and more catch limit regulations. But as environment reporter Jonathan Wilson tells us, one waterman is staying positive against the odds. Robert T. Brown eases his 42-foot bay-built fishing boat away from his property along St. Patrick's Creek in St. Mary's County, Maryland. So how many times have you been out on this same stretch of water? I don't know. I've been coming out of this creek since I was a teenager. The 63-year-old Brown, or Robert T., as his friends call him, is headed about five miles out towards the mouth of the Potomac River to check on one of his fishing nets. And if you think 63 sounds a little old for a commercial fisherman, you're right, but only just. Brown is only a few years above the average age of a Maryland waterman. He says there are just not many young people signing up for a job that guarantees hard manual labor but doesn't offer health insurance. It's tough. It's, it's a hard way. If you're not really raised on the water and get it in your blood, it's not nobody else really going into it. Brown says being a waterman is even tougher than it was when he got started on his own about 40 years ago. But looking for another line of work just isn't an option. I've got a high school education. Where am I going to go? And who wants to hire somebody that's 63 years old who has no other experience than what we have done around here? Uh, in the water business, you know, it, you don't have no other choice, really. Brown may not have a choice, but Mick Blackstone, the executive director of the Maryland Watermen's Association, says watermen like Brown are constantly adapting to changing conditions. It's a skill that's served them well for generations. Well, they're very good at rolling with the punches. Um, that's for sure. They roll with whatever hits them because this is what they do. And This is what their fathers did, their grandfathers, the other men or women in the community. So a lot of them grew up with this. Back on the Potomac, we've reached Brown's net. If you've never seen a pound net set up in the water before, the first glance can be a bit eerie. Most of the contraption is underwater, so from a distance, all you can see is a series of telephone pole-sized logs poking out of the water like a wooden version of Stonehenge. When the fish swim up river, when they run into any obstacle, the nature of the fish is to come out and swim out deep to go around it. Pound nets take advantage of that instinct, funneling the fish into an enclosure as they swim away from shore. Brown's crew of two 20-somethings, Dusty Anderson and Speedy Lyon, start bringing the net up to the surface. Even at 63 years young, Brown does his fair share of the hard labor, but today he gets little for his effort. The hull is mostly made up of rockfish. I mean, there's plenty of rockfish, and you can see it's all size. I guess the biggest ones we have were 10 or 12 pounds, and then you got some smaller ones. The problem is that rockfish season doesn't start for two more weeks, so keeping them now would be illegal. When it's all said and done, they've thrown what would have been $8,000 worth of rockfish back into the water. It doesn't make for a great start to Brown's week, but he reluctantly admits that the state and federal management plans put in place for the bay and its fisheries make sense. We would have had a good catch if we could have kept them, but uh, the only thing about that is 
you wouldn't get the money that you get for them now if everybody was fishing like we used two years ago. And we got to manage the resource. Brown's energy is remarkable for his age, and he shows no signs of slowing down or even becoming bitter about new regulations or the ever-present threat of pollution. Mick Blackstone says the secret to how watermen like Brown stay positive isn't really a secret at all. I mean, they don't want to do anything else. They, that, that's the secret, is they don't want to do anything else. But ask Brown about his children, and you can sense that he does see the end of a long line of Brown watermen on the horizon. He says both of his sons love working on the water, but simply can't afford to make a living without benefits like health insurance and retirement. One son has children of his own to support and has a good job working for Verizon. He's planning on coming back once he retires. You know, and that's, that's what you're looking at. You know, it's a lot of people throughout the state who have had to leave the seafood industry and get a job. And that's just it. Being a waterman isn't a job. It's a way of life. And it's a way of life that Robert T. Brown isn't about to give up, no matter what the changing tides bring. You can't give up. You just can't give up. If you give up and don't fight them and keep trying, you're gone. So you just don't give up. If you give up, you're over with. I'm Jonathan Wilson. without saying that Robert T. Brown is pretty passionate about what he does. And that's also very true for the guy we'll meet next. His name is Wallace Kornack, and every day just after dawn, he leaves his home in Georgetown and heads to Rock Creek Park to document migrant birds. He's been taking these daily trips ever since he retired from his nuclear engineering job more than a decade ago. Emily Berman tagged along with the unofficial president of D.C.'s birding community and brings us this story. The list-making begins around 6.30 in the morning. At the bridge, I heard great crested flycatcher, wood thrush, oven bird. This is Kornak's friend, Bill Butler. He arrived early today, and in the 10 minutes he's been waiting, there's been a lot of bird activity to report. Titmouse, chickadee, pileated woodpecker. While Kornak takes down these first few sightings, Butler explains that Wallace Kornack is the most hardcore birder in Washington, D.C. He's been out here nearly every day, rain or shine, for the past 13 years, ever since the day he retired. And so we do this basically with Wallace being the center point, and the rest of us radiate out from him and tell him what it is we see or hear. We walk down Ross Road and into an open clearing called the equitation field. Then we begin to listen. The other thing about this birding is you have to have exceedingly great patience. It's it's going to be quiet for quite a long while. So we wait. And after a few minutes, figures emerge in the distance. They're wearing rain boots, hats, and large binoculars. The birders are arriving. Uh, this is Chip Chipley. Chipley lives in Fairfax, but comes here during the migration season, he says, because even though it's in the middle of the city, you just can't beat Rock Creek Park. This park is better than anything in Virginia. You can see more different species here in a shorter amount of time. Kornak walks around, saying hello to everyone and making sure he has their names. In his list, he likes to give credit to the birders who first spotted each bird. I appreciate a good birder. I want to know who they are. 
they know me, I know them. There's no published meeting time for the group. It grows mainly through word of mouth. During the week, there are just a handful of birders. But on the weekends, especially during the spring and fall, there can be quite a flock. This can be quite a scene. Sometimes there'll be 50 people here. Lisa Shannon comes here every week. She got into birding in her 30s and likes joining Cornac to learn from more advanced birders. Though, she jokes, a lifetime of birding can make someone so accurate, it's ridiculous. I mean, these people who started when they were 10 or something are amazing. They say, oh, that ship note up there is obviously a female scarlet tanager that just came here from Mexico. I can smell the tacos on her breath. (laughs) Taco breath aside, the warblers everyone's looking for really are making their way up from Mexico. They're here in D.C. for just three or four weeks as they head north toward Canada. But after an hour of looking and very few warblers, Cornac migrates to his second location, the maintenance yard. The group walks down a path to a place that looks like it should be off-limits. There are heaps of sand and dirt, old fences and bulldozers. Wallace Cornack spots someone in the distance. It's Matthew Saleo, a grad student at the University of Maryland. Matt's carrying a camera the size of a NASA telescope. He's been up here taking photos of birds all morning and has seen a lot. Two black-throated greens... One yellow warbler, maybe ten yellow rumps. Cornack adds these to his list, which, as soon as he gets home, he types up and sends to an online database called eBird. It's run by Cornell University. And because birders use it all over the world to look at migration patterns, Cornack's pretty careful about which observations make the cut. Sometimes I report it, sometimes I don't, depending on the credibility of the birder, the experience of the birder. I uh, use my judgment. But... Uh, most of these people right here are very experienced birds. Paul Pisano joins Cornac on the weekends and also happens to be the peer reviewer for the eBird entries from D.C. For him to take the time every day to be out here and capture what's being seen and then take time to put it into the, into the system, I, mean, I think that's, that's really an incredible quality. The group is now leaning against a fence, chatting and pointing their binoculars up into the trees for any final identifications. Today was not a big day, Cornack says. But still, there are dozens of birds on the list. There are disappointing days, a lot of those, but there are very exciting days, and that's what brings you out every time. It's the unexpected uh, appearing before your eyes. And that might happen today, or it might happen tomorrow, maybe sometime next week. But no matter when it happens, Wallace Cornack will be there to jot it down. I'm Emily Berman. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit Northridge in Alexandria, Virginia, and the Shepherd Park neighborhood of Northwest D.C. My name is Rosalind Bovey. I live in the Northridge neighborhood in Alexandria, and I'm 74 years old. Northridge is in the northwest corner of Alexandria. It's bounded by Park Fairfax on the north and Quaker Lane on the west. 
Since 1648, the neighborhood has been part of nine jurisdictions, but has been attached to the city of Alexandria since 1929. The streetcar line that ran between Alexandria and Washington from 1892 to 1931 led to increased development along Russell Road, one of the boundaries of our neighborhood. It's kind of like a small town. To me, it's sort of like a home village. And what I've always thought about living in Alexandria is that Alexandria is like a real town. It has a, you know, a characteristics of its own. It's not just a suburb of Washington. And people feel a loyalty toward it, just like they feel a loyalty toward their, this neighborhood, Northridge. My name is Rosalind Coates, and I live in Shepherd Park. The boundaries of Shepherd Park are to the south, Fern Street to the east, Georgia Avenue to the west, 16th Street, and to the north, Eastern Avenue. What I really liked about Shepherd Park is that it is diverse on purpose. That is, Somewhere around in the 50s, an organization called Neighbors Inc. was established to stem the tide of white flight. When African Americans began moving into the neighborhood and people of other racial and ethnic groups, and there was a concerted effort to create and maintain diversity in, in the neighborhood, and that holds today. It's an extraordinarily diverse, all racial and ethnic groups are respected. One of the places that really shows up is during our annual potluck dinner where we get foods from every racial or ethnic group imaginable and it makes for a wonderful, wonderful meal and a great time for fellowship among the members. You'll hear from some of the neighbors that a group of us are like shared parents or our kids, you know, <laughs> have grown up together and so they have moms one, two, and three, dads one, two, and three. It's just really awesome. We heard from Rosalind Bovee in Northridge and Rosalind Coates in Shepherd Park. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. And we have a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website, metroconnection.org. Up next, working the beat as a rookie cop. No one calls us on their best day, you know? So we see the worst of everyone. It's coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're bringing you some of our favorite profiles from the past year. We've already heard from a passionate waterman, a dedicated birder, and a Vietnam veteran with a lifelong debt to a fellow soldier. To kick off this part of the show, though, let's turn to the movies. If you watched any movies or TV back in 1990, you may remember this movie trailer. Clint Eastwood is Sergeant Nick Polovsky. What you might call a seasoned cop. 
Charlie Sheen is Detective David Ackerman. What you definitely call a rookie. Good work, kid. Now read them their rights. The Rookie is your classic rookie cop veteran cop flick. The veteran's all set in his old school ways, the rookie's just getting his feet wet, and inevitably, at some point, the rookie decides he's ready to step up his game. It's time for me to stop being scared, for other people to start. Like on TV, they make it look so cool. Um, You know, they jump out of the huge, like, black trucks and they bust down doors, you know, police, everybody show me your hands. Kim Curry is a rookie officer with the Montgomery County Police Department. So I have to ask, in your experience so far, you know, you had those childhood dreams and visions of this, like, really exciting life. How does it compare so far? Yeah, I put it this way. I haven't jumped out of a black SUV and kicked down anybody's door. But at age 25, Curry has seen a fair share of action during her first 18 months as a patrol officer in Germantown, Maryland. I recently joined her on the overnight shift, riding shotgun in this totally tricked out SUV. Oh my God, this is quite the setup. And with help from continual updates on a laptop computer. So this computer is like the best thing that's ever happened to me. And a flurry of messages over the police radio. Yes, I could be for a critical disappearance earlier. Curry handled all sorts of incidents around Germantown. At 10 p.m. or so, we responded to a 911 call from a potentially mentally disturbed woman who claimed voices were threatening to kill her. County police. Then we pulled over a driver who'd blazed his way through a no-turn-on-red light. Good evening. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I stopped you because you ran that light back there. That's a no-turn-on-red light. you have your license and your registration on you? Yes, ma'am, I do. And a little bit later, we provided backup to a senior officer who'd stopped a kid for drinking in an abandoned parking lot. By the time we arrived, the officer had cuffed the 19-year-old, who apparently had initially lied about his name and age. Will I get out? It's up to the commissioner, I'm not sure. I didn't bother nobody or harm nobody. Why are you trying to bother me anyway? All right, well, you can't lie to the police. I didn't mean to lie to you. I was just scared, so. Kimberly Curry says her initial inspiration for getting in on all this action was her uncle. Growing up, my uncle was a police officer in this department for years, and... He just was always a, had a very demanding like presence. When he walked into a room, people paid him so much respect. And I just admired that. And that helped push me into it. Was it super intimidating? I mean, when you started? Oh, yes. I mean, you have all these people with brass on their shoulders. And you're like, oh, is that my sergeant? Is that my lieutenant? I don't know who that is. In the academy, you had to get this. You had to address them by their rank, yet you could not look at them. I'm like, um, without sounding like an idiot, how am I supposed to know what your rank is if I can't see your shoulder? But we, we mastered the art of glancing out of the corner of our eye to catch their rank. Curry says she and her 30 mostly male classmates also had to master all kinds of law, constitutional, criminal. Day one, we get there and there are two sacks of books on your desk and you can't see over top of them. But Curry made it through and now ranks as PO1 or Police Officer 1. Which, she tells me as we drive around Germantown, is basically the lowest rung on the ladder. You described, like, your position as bottom of the barrel. I mean, you still get to do a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, we have full police powers, so I get to do, like, everything. A PO3, which is the highest um, patrol officer. I mean, except for, like, sergeant. Um, We get to do all of the same stuff, but bottom of the barrel meaning if I go on a call with a PO3... He calls the shots. And quite often, Curry says, she actually prefers being so deferent. And there are times when you get on on scene of a call and you're like, I feel like a rookie. I don't know what to do with this. And then sometimes 
I run calls with the um, officers who just got out of the academy. So I'm the senior car. Oh, that's weird. <laughs> I'm like, I have six months on you. Like, that's it. But sometimes, she says, those six months can make a big difference. It's fun because then I actually feel like I know what I'm doing and they don't. <laughs> and it's true. Curry says since getting out on the street, she's learned all sorts of things. The neighborhood, the people, not to mention all that cool police lingo. Um, here's one I'd never heard before. 41? 41 means okay? Yeah, 41 means okay. That come from the old 10 codes. We don't use those anymore, but... 41, it's easier than I'm okay. Or And then sometimes even you say I'm okay, you use our phonetic alphabet, I'm Ocean King. Curry says in the police force, you're considered a rookie for the first five years. And once her five years are up, she hopes to get promoted and ideally keep protecting and serving the community here in Germantown, a place she's truly grown to love, even if it's nothing like a movie or TV show. I mean, I have some that I like, but it's really hard because you're like, that's not real. It doesn't happen like that. You, you enjoy them when you're like, oh, I'm going to be a cop. I'm going to watch these shows. It's going to be awesome. But that's Hollywood, you know. The reality may be far less glamorous, far less dramatic. But PO1 Kimberly Curry says she can imagine being a cop for the long haul. For her, that would be positively 41, if not Ocean King. The person we'll meet next just finished up her studies at Phelps Architecture, Construction, and Engineering High School in Northeast D.C. Her name is Sharnika Glasby, and she's overcome some pretty daunting challenges to make it this far. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza brings us her story. 18-year-old Shanika Glaspie is one of those students who squeezed every moment out of high school. She was in Model UN, Shakespeare Scholars, and Choir. She was an athlete, taking part in softball, volleyball, and track. And she was an honor roll student, maintaining a 3.7 GPA. I do like being a good student, and when I graduate, I want to be able to say I was in the top five, or I was number one, which I was in the beginning of the year. Shanika was the top student in her school, but then... The incident happened. The incident is Shanika's shorthand for the day she was shot on her way to school a few months ago. It was a normal day. I was rushing out the house, and I'm walking down the street, my iPod and my phone in my hand, changing the song. She was a few blocks from her home, close to the Anacostia metro station, when a man suddenly came up to her. He's wearing a mask, and he's like... Give me your bag. It didn't really register, and he shoots me. All I hear is a really loud, just popping sound. She describes feeling a searing sensation. The bullet hit just above her knee and went through her leg. There was blood. My whole pants leg was soaked. I'm like, am I going to die from this? Like, it was just so much. Shanika limped toward her house. When the police came, I was still crying. When I was in the ambulance, I was still crying. They were trying to talk to me and calm me down, but it was like I couldn't really get a hold of myself. Shanika says this happens a lot in her neighborhood. She just didn't think it would happen to her on her way to school wearing her uniform. She missed a month of school as her leg healed. Some worries, like, will you be able to see the scar when I wear a skirt, faded after a few weeks. But some wounds are still with her. It'll make you paranoid all the time. It's like, I will never go back to the time where I can just walk down the street blasting my music or with my iPod in my hand. 
you're always looking behind you. You're always wondering if the person sitting next to you is going to do something bad. It's like really stressful. Her schoolwork suffered when she missed weeks of class. I haven't been able to come back with the grades I have gotten in the past. Like I still get A's and B's, but there's a occasional C that's just killing me. And it's because I don't understand the lessons I've missed. And like in math, it really set me back. Plus other challenging classes like my digital electronic class and my engineering class set me back in those. So I have to catch up in those too. If it was like, when did we learn this? <laughs> And everybody's like, oh, yeah, it was that class. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was out. <laughs> Shanika wants to be an engineer. In my family, most people have not gone above high school education. They got a job right after high school. Or they tried college and they got pregnant or something. And I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be dependent on, like, the government welfare or food stamps. I've seen that look of defeat. I don't want that life. I want a better life. A better life for Shanika doesn't mean fancy clothes or expensive meals or exotic vacations. I want to be able to go to school. I want to be able to say I've got my master's degree and have like a awesome job that's like that I, you know, won't be able to get fired because <laughs> I have like good education. Like I want to be able to know that I can pay my bills and have a good house and maybe a fancy car. <laughs> Shanika says she has a big, supportive extended family who have been there for her when she faced other challenges. A mother on drugs, bouncing between relatives, a custody battle. And school has also helped her cope with the shooting. It's still a terrible subject, but it's not as terrible as it could be. It's really stressful, but then you have the people in your life that makes it better. While she was recovering from her wound, school staff brought her food and helped pay her senior dues. Her friends helped explain classwork and cheered her up. And best of all, she started hearing back from colleges with acceptance letters. She laughs and remembers what she was focused on after she was shot. What was in my bag was really important documents. I had to submit those so my transcripts would be sent off to the colleges. So the one thing I was thinking about was, I have to get back to school, I have to turn those in. You got shot and that was one of the things on your mind? A lot of people say that. They were like, you got shot and you were worried about college applications. Yes, I was. Because the deadline was really close. Shanika Glaspie is going to Penn State to study engineering in the fall. I'm Kavita Kadosa. wrap up today's show with On the Coast. Our regular segment in which Brian Russo brings us the latest from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. Earlier this year, Brian reported on an uptick in heroin abuse around Ocean City and what police and addiction counselors are doing about it. He also brought us a more personal tale, that of a man named Kevin Cranfield. Kevin is a well-known member of the skate and surf communities in Ocean City. He's also struggled with heroin addiction. Now that he's been clean nearly five years, he mentors others trying to kick their drug addictions. He met up with Brian at a coffee shop to share his tale. Heroin was definitely not my first drug of choice. So heroin came a little bit later down the road. But uh, the one drug that you're into just isn't around. And all of a sudden, somebody's like, well, hey, I got this. Let's try this. Mm -hmm. 
And honestly and truly, the first time I tried it, it didn't really, I didn't like it. You know, the whole, like, once we did it, and we, we didn't shoot it, we snorted it. And um, got sick. I didn't really understand the high because I'm actually really, I'm, I'm an upper sky, you know. I was, uh, my addiction basically based on, like, crack cocaine. And when I lived in California, it was crystal meth. I will say that with all the drugs, opiates are the hardest ones to get off of. And for myself, it was the hardest one for me to get off of. How old were you when, when you took the turn towards the so-called recreational drugs, pot, drinking, into maybe what's considered the harder drugs, crack cocaine and, and heroin? Well, my first time ever doing drugs, I was, I was probably 14, you know, and then it was just uh, it was stuff called Quicksilver. It was the stuff you huffed. You got it from the public library, you know, just like any of the huffing stuff. Then I stopped for a couple years, and the drugs for me really started probably... Probably when I was like 17, 18, <clears throat> and it, it went from just, you know, smoking weed to, uh, and it just progressed really quick. Smoking weed to drinking to all of a sudden, before I knew it, my life was already out of control. I mean, it didn't take long for me. It went from weed to acid, you know, acid shrooms, all the psychedelics, and then it went within, I mean, I'm not even talking a year, you know, I started dabbling in with the harder drugs, crack cocaine and stuff like that. Is there any moment while you were using those drugs and getting high that you thought, I'm losing control a little bit? And, and if you did feel that, what was it about the high that overrode those feelings of fear or cautiousness? I started realizing that, that I didn't use like my friends did. Whether it, when I, and when I say use and, and getting high, it's alcohol, it's all of it. It's all mixed in together for me. And um, I approached some friends and, you know, tried to, tried to start changing my life then. Didn't work. But the simple fact was the drugs, the drugs made me feel like somebody. You know, I mean, when I, when I, when I was high or when I was loaded, I was, uh, like, even more outgoing. I could talk to the females better. You know, all those little, like, you know, the, the insecurities that I had that the people don't really recognize. And when I had drugs, I had no insecurities. You know, I thought I was the man. You know what I mean? And that was the first, like, grab. That was the first thing that I loved about it. It's just that way, the power that I, you know, I felt powerful. Tell me about when you made the decision almost five years ago to get clean and the process that it's been in staying clean for these five years. It was December, my clean day is December 20th, 08. I actually, uh, it was probably a few days prior to that, I'd been actively uh, back to smoke crack again, you know, and, and then it wasn't so much as opiates, but it was Xanaxes, and I was going into a lot of, uh, of uh, benzo blackouts, not knowing what I was doing, and it got to the point of, like, my using was at a height of where, like, nobody knew I was doing it, or so I thought hiding in my house, couches in front of the door, paranoia, and the last day that I used the benzos and the, um, the crack cocaine was basically trying to kill myself. I wanted to smoke and take as many pills as I possibly could just because I was just done. I was like, I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to get this, you know, and I had this like we'll call it a moment of clarity. Where I was like, all right, I'm going to give this thing one more shot. From that day on, like I said, December 20th of 08, I have 
put everything, just is what I, what I, the effort I put into getting high, I've put into staying clean and into my recovery. Do kids ever come to you or their parents come to you and say, you know, Kevin, we know you've been through this. How do I help my kid from not going through something like this? Oh, definitely. It's, 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 it's been weird, you know. I've had, uh, I've had it on both sides with the kids coming to me and then the parents coming to me. And there's a crew of kids that, that like, I really, I really love them, you know. I took them under my wing and, and you know, some of them are, are doing the right thing and some of them are doing what we all, you know, what most of us did at that age. It's, it's scary. But I've also heard some really good things where some of the kids are actually, a couple of kids are trying to get help. Yeah. I hope maybe that it's because of what they saw me go through. I just, I try to be that person that they can go to, yeah. you know, when they're scared to go to maybe mom or dad. I can't say I'll never get high again, but what I can sit here and say, I, I don't ever want to get high again. That was Ocean City resident Kevin Cranfield speaking with Coastal Reporter Brian Russo. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Brian Russo, Kavitha Cardoza, Jacob Fenston, and Emily Berman. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Eva Harder. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. If you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website. Just click the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll revisit our fatherhood show. We'll meet a comedy writer who's making a career out of his stay-at-home parenting antics. We'll spend a day with a dad who just finished high school. And we'll tag along with a father who's taking his family on a sailing expedition around the world. We uh, just started the longest leg of our trip to New Zealand. Total distance is just over 3,000 miles. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. 